Welcome to the Complexity Premier Podcast. I'm your co-host, Yingyi An Cheng, Portfolio Management Director at Coolabar Capital. And Yingyi's is joined, as always, by Chris Joy. Uh, I'm a Portfolio Manager, also at Coolabar Capital. Chris, big month in June. Can you talk us through what happened in markets and across our portfolios? Yeah, sure, Yingyi's. So June was another very strong month. We saw mean reversion in our key active positions, which include bank-issued senior bonds, bank-issued subordinated bonds, and the major banks' hybrids. In the month of June, the Ausbond floating rate note index was up 0.23%. The composite bond index was up 0.31%. Unfortunately, cash returns were terrible. So the bank bill index was only up 0.01%, and the RBA cash rate only returned 0.02%. Across our portfolios, we did really well in the month. Obviously, past performance is uh, no guide to future returns. And please uh, pay attention to uh, your disclaimer at the end of the podcast, Yingyi. But for what it's worth, our active credit alpha strategy was up 1.81% in the month. And it's up 9.23% over the June quarter. And that's pre-fees because that's only an Insto product. It's not available to retail investors and the fee terms are confidential. Our long short credit fund was up 1.38% net of fees in the month. And over the last quarter, it is up 8.2%. That's 8.2%. HBRD, which is an active ETF product that we run for beta shares, also had a very strong month up 1.3% net. And over the last three months, it has returned 6.2% net. Our active composite bond strategy was up 1.01% in the month and is up 4.13% over the last three months. Uh, That compares to the composite bond index return of just 0.53%. And then we run two cash plus or cash plus plus products. They are called the Smarter Money Fund and the Smarter Money Higher Income Fund. Both are ranked in FE Fund Info's Cash Enhanced Universe. And in the month of June, they uh, returned net of fees between 0.44% and 0.5%. Over the June quarter, our two Cash Plus and Cash Plus Plus products returned 1.9% net to 2.3% net, and they're using retail fees. So our team's been very busy. Uh, The team's expanded. We now have 23 full-time executives, including 11 analysts and five portfolio managers. There are also, amongst that group, four PhDs in the team and uh, one very dopey PhD dropout, namely yours truly. I was studying at Cambridge University and set up a quant research business whilst I was at uni, so I didn't complete my dissertation. What else happened in June? I mean, we were, as I mentioned, very active. Over the month we have, in June, we bought and sold $1.6 billion worth of bonds. And over the last six to seven months, we've bought and sold about $9.3 billion of bonds. Uh, So extraordinarily active. You might recall that we net bought $937 million of credit over late February and March. And since the end of March, we have net sold more than $940 million. So very active. I guess the only other uh, final thing, this is obviously a bit of a plug, but we were pretty happy that we had four products ranked in e-vestments, top 15 performing fixed income products globally. 
That list covers more than 25,000 global fixed income products. And we also had our Longshore Credit Fund rank number one in its short duration credit universe in the survey published by Mercer over the last uh, one month, three months, six months, and 12 months. And it is also number one over the last two years. And then in Mercer's Australian Fixed Interest Universe, our active composite bond strategy has ranked number one over the last one month, three months. Uh, number three over the last uh, 12 months. It's a pretty big survey, a lot of managers. And we are number two over the last two years and three years. So net, net, pretty happy with all those results. Yes. Chris, very few people actually understand liquidity in credit or non-government bond markets. Many express opinions on the subject of credit liquidity and, for example, the lack thereof in March 2020, but they tend not to be actual traders of liquid assets. They're always observers most of the time, non-participants or investors in illiquid credit. And investors who in 2020 queried the lack of liquidity in credit markets almost always thought they were holding liquid assets when any serious study of those bonds would have revealed them to be illiquid during stressful market conditions. One of the reasons Coolabar is so unusually transparent about our trading activity is to inform the public about the true nature of the accessible underlying liquidity in credit markets, which are inherently very opaque given they are over-the-counter or unlisted, and because ASX and Ostriclear which is the central clearinghouse for all OTC bond trades, steadfastly refuses to publicly release the data they capture on daily trading activity and price changes. We, as you know, have requested to do this for years, but to no avail thus far. Coolabar's empirical research shows that there is an extremely strong relationship between credit quality, or the risk of default, and liquidity, by which we mean the ability to transact or buy and sell an asset while minimizing market impact costs in all market conditions. Another dimension is of course tradability. It is possible to have very safe assets like a term deposit that are not tradable. In the case of TDs, there is a minimum 31 day holding period that is imposed on investors that results in a period of blanket illiquidity. A further example might be a safe and secure loan which cannot, however, be easily traded in a secondary market. Chris, what do you think about this? Yeah, this is an important topic you're raising as I actually discussed at length in a video interview with Pinnacle's Gerald Williston. And in particular, I talk about the relationship between credit quality and liquidity. In March, Coolabar bought and sold almost a billion dollars of bonds at a time when markets were being subject to one of their worst shocks in the last 100 years. Over April, May, June and July, Coolbar has gross sold more than $2.9 billion of credit and we've net sold over $800 million at the present time. In total, we have bought and sold more than $8.9 billion of cash bonds in the first six to seven months of 2020, which I'm pretty confident would make us the most active participant in the sector, according to feedback from leading market makers. And so in March, liquidity was generally only available in assets with very strong credit quality. For years, Coolbar has avoided bonds with correlated downside default and liquidity risks precisely because we have been concerned that they would be non-tradable or illiquid in any serious downside scenario. This includes bonds issued by commercial property trusts, hotels, residential developers, retailers, airlines, and quite commonly you see in portfolios, 
non-bank lenders offering non-prime finance to borrowers who cannot get credit from banks. These are highly pro-cyclical credit exposures and they tend to suffer badly during any recession like the one we're currently experiencing. Put differently, these cyclical industries have correlated downside and liquidity risks, which we've been keen to avoid. The biggest market maker in Aussie Credit, ANZ, wrote to its clients some months ago to explain this dynamic. And in that note, the global head of trading commented that, quote, in our view, the primary driver of the poor liquidity and the recent extreme spread widening is the inherent credit and solvency risk of corporates. And then he says, quote, if investors are able to access repo on corporates, then it might alleviate some forced selling in times of stress. But that is, in our opinion, minimal. And he continued, quote, cheaper funding of bonds in a financial crisis doesn't take away fundamental concerns of credit worthiness. From the perspective of a market making desk, we can say with confidence that the thoughts of where we could fund our corporate bond holdings was not a factor of note when bidding in March and April. Foremost was credit worthiness. So Yingers, this actually brings us to the point that one of the most popular yet flawed homilies in fixed income investing is that diversification is a universally good thing. Whereas a diversified global equities fund run by Magellan might include 25 to 30 global stocks, active bond or credit portfolios typically comprise hundreds, if not thousands, of individual securities. And yet the apparent safety of having risk spread across so many names failed investors in the external shock brought by the COVID-19 crisis. Notionally, well-diversified credit portfolios suffered from extreme illiquidity and months of inferior returns that resulted in an enormous increase in exit costs, if any such liquidity was actually available. This also contributed to havoc in the passive exchange-traded fund ETF world, where index tracking products that were meant to be diversified across hundreds of Aussie bonds suddenly endured extreme illiquidity and price declines that were much larger than the losses recorded by the benchmark the ETF was supposed to be hugging. This begs the question as to why there is such a striking difference in the best practice diversification approaches in active equities relative to non-government bonds. Chris, thoughts here? Well, Yingers, one obvious response is that the tolerance for volatility and losses in equities is much greater than what fixed income investors are prepared to accept, given the high return targets required from assets sitting at the bottom of the corporate capital stack. A rudimentary corollary is therefore that one needs a far larger number of assets in a credit portfolio than ordinarily found in active equities to reduce investors' total portfolio risk to more acceptable levels. There are, however, several flawed assumptions that underpin this logic. The most important is the presumption that this diversification actually works. In order for diversification to ameliorate the probability of loss, the underlying assets have to move in uncorrelated ways. And yet when an economy is subject to a large internal or external shock, such as the crisis in the US in 2008 or COVID-19 in 2020, which then precipitates a deep recession, that event by definition imposes adversity on a large number of businesses at the same time. And so we tend to observe correlations converge to one during these crises as investors rationally price in systematic or non-diversifiable downside risks that will afflict many companies concurrently. And Chris, this is the little appreciated paradox of fixed income diversification, whereby it becomes counterintuitively risk increasing rather than risk reducing in times of extreme duress. 
If retail investors were to open up a well-diversified credit portfolio and examine the holdings line by line, some might discover that anywhere from one quarter to a half of all the assets have been issued by medium-sized businesses they've never heard of. These are precisely the sorts of companies that struggle during recessions. In the present episode, we have seen larger household names fail around the world, including Virgin Australia, Neyman Marcus, JCPenney, J.Crew, Hertz, and in Europe, Wirecard. There has likewise been a surge in defaults on racier, high-yield or sub-investment-grade corporate bonds to the highest levels since the GFC, which is projected to continue for some time. This is one reason why so many daily liquidity credit portfolios have suffered from unexpected illiquidity, which has made it very costly for investors to recover their capital. The market knows that many corporate bonds have experienced a massive increase in their risk of default and has not, as a consequence, been willing to trade them in large or any volume in the absence of central bank support. To take one case study, the Osborne Floating Rate Note Index carries an ultra-strong AA- average credit rating and is assumed by many to represent a high-grade portfolio of extremely liquid Australian bonds. And yet, the ETF that tracks it suddenly suffered much larger intra-month losses in March than the index itself theoretically reported. That might have something to do with the fact the real-world investors buying and selling the ETF knew that only 68% of the index includes bonds from relatively safe Australian businesses, despite that it is the premier benchmark for floating-rate Aussie credit. Almost 20% of the index is made up of lesser-known companies based in China, South Korea, Singapore, Japan, and the Middle East. The bonds issued by these entities were especially illiquid in March and much more difficult to price. While the index did not reflect this, since valuations froze, the price action that we saw displayed by the ETF might have. Yeah, Yingers, I think you make uh, very valid points. And the illiquidity and risk induced by excessive diversification in fixed income can be further exacerbated by the popular fad of so-called barbell investing. This involves running a notionally investment-grade credit portfolio with a solid average credit rating in, say, the triple B or single A band that in fact conceals two very different underlying exposures. Half the portfolio might comprise high-grade and liquid AA and AAA rated assets, while the other half encompasses riskier low triple B and sub-investment grade double BB and triple C rated securities, or indeed loans with no rating at all. We also see situations in investment grade credit portfolios where you have a lot of AAA and AA liquid and tradable assets, and then Another chunk of the portfolio can still be highly rated. So it might be AAA, AA, single A, or triple B, but it tends to be extremely liquid in subordinated ABS and RMBS or subordinated securitized loans issued by non-bank lenders. The problem is that in any recession, the higher yield assets can freeze and de facto undermine the portfolio-wide liquidity. When faced with redemptions, the investor is often forced to sell the highest quality assets leaving the portfolio with greater exposure to the remaining illiquids. These complications can be amplified by the fact it is very difficult for even institutional credit investors to truly understand the risks inherent in their individual holdings when they are overseeing hundreds, if not thousands, of securities with idiosyncratic default hazards at both the issuer and security level. Consider the time and effort that Magellan's massive analyst and portfolio manager team commits to understanding the risks in their comparatively pithy 25 to 30 stock global equities portfolio. 
Imagine if you asked them to try and run the same strategy with the same level of diligence and care covering 500 bonds. The irony is that the fixed income teams doing precisely this tend to be much smaller than their equity counterparts because of their relatively skinny fee budgets. Yeah, Chris. To be clear, I think there are professional investors out there who are happy to take these illiquidity and downside risks across their active credit exposures. They don't need or expect daily liquidity and are very comfortable with the idea that a diversified portfolio of high-yield bonds is inevitably going to experience downgrades and defaults, which is the trade-off they accept for the loftier returns these strategies can generate during the good times. But there may also be other investors who assume that diversifying across hundreds of bonds was a source of safety and security, which enhanced rather than detracted from both their daily liquidity and probabilities of loss. The obvious question that flows from this analysis is, what is the alternative? If daily liquidity is the requirement, our personal preference is to focus on constructing portfolios of assets issued by unquestionably strong businesses that have negligible to no risk of default in any serious recession. These are often entities that benefit from implicit or explicit government guarantees and which have unassailable monopoly or oligopoly rights over their markets. As one illustration, we would prefer to buy a sub-investment grade, i.e. high-yield hybrid issued by Macquarie Bank, than a senior unsecured bond issued by Virgin Airlines with a superficially similar double B band credit rating. In March, the ASX hybrid market experienced a huge increase in liquidity with north of $120 million trading on individual days while many investment-grade corporate bonds with ostensibly superior credit ratings were completely frozen. And investors trying to short Virgin's bonds early in the month could not find a single bid. There is a valuable role to be played by all the assets discussed here in retail and institutional portfolios. But to help navigate the tricks and traps, one should consider obtaining high-quality financial advice. Now, Chris, I want to talk about vaccines, which is something our team has been thinking a lot about. In fact, one of our analysts, his father is a world-leading biologist and he's working on a coronavirus vaccine in Canada. The emergence of a vaccine could really be a panacea for markets and portend the advent of a new trading regime. And this historic year has been defined by a multiplicity of regimes. It started in January with insouciance to the risk of pandemic, which was not unreasonable given the facts disseminated by the World Health Organization regarding the absence of human-to-human transmission. In March, this transformed into unprecedented panic as markets suddenly realized they would have to price a one in a hundred year shock in the absence of appropriate policy support and central bank asset purchases or quantitative easing in particular. This was amplified by the refusal of central banks in early March to launch QE, with the chairman of the US Federal Reserve, Jerome Powell, ruling it out after he first cut interest rates by 50 basis points at the start of the month. The third phase was the belated arrival of enormous and unrestricted QE in the second half of that month, which had the predicted effect of placating markets and providing a desperately needed liquidity, solvency and stimulus bridge to a more certain future ideally defined by the availability of vaccines. The fourth phase was the earlier than expected April peak in infection curves in Australia, Western Europe and New York, which allowed nations to exit their lockdowns and kickstart economic activity over May and June. 
At this phase has been the advent of secondary outbreaks, such as those seen earlier in Singapore and Japan, and more recently in Beijing and Victoria, coupled with the emergence of New York-like first waves in California, Texas and Florida. Given the lack of centralised policy control and its federated structure, the US is like 50 independent countries with their own idiosyncratic COVID-19 outbreaks and response plans. The US cumulative infection curve accordingly resembles the rolling global COVID-19 curve as new countries suffer surges. And Chris, one of the biggest sources of confusion from financial market participants has been reconciling price action. Many bearish investors who got the first half of March right have been blown up by the ebullience evidence since. Those who rushed for the exits in March have likewise been punished mercilessly by the missing massive rebound. This has been a battle between the recession juxtaposed against the tidal wave of monetary and fiscal policy liquidity and stimulus that is seeking to counteract it. If you focus exclusively on the damage, it is hard to understand. But if you survey the totality of this terrain and the tug of war between the recession and the recovery that policy actions are seeking to promote, it is easier to fathom. A sixth dynamic that we have tried to illuminate has been the emerging Cold War between China and the West. This is a game-changing regime that most investors have been indifferent to for far too long. And its potentially profound consequences could be felt in the short or long term, depending on the decisions made by key actors. The next big pivot point for markets in the months ahead will likely be the advent of vaccines. Since February, we've argued the contrarian case that vaccines would arrive in 2020, well ahead of consensus estimates, and that they would be cheap and broadly effective. Chris, do you want to chime in here with a contribution? Yeah, sure, Yingers. Well, as you know, Dr. Anthony Fauci, who is director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, and who has been an advisor to every US president since Ronald Reagan, he was initially sceptical, I think, of our central case, arguing in early March that, quote, it will take at least a year to a year and a half to have a vaccine we can use. Yet as a result of record public funding and support for COVID-19 vaccine research, Fauci has, I think, more recently embraced a more optimistic assessment. And following the release this week of the results of the first human trial of Moderna's vaccine, which triggered the desired immunological response in all 45 people they tested, Fauci declared that the US was on track to develop a vaccine before the end of this year, which is obviously much more in line with our estimates. And he was quoted as saying, I feel good about the projected timetable. Crucially, Moderna has already started mass commercial production of its vaccine at three different plants across the US in anticipation of regulatory approval and expects to be able to produce 500 million to 1 billion doses each year. In total, there are already 23 different COVID-19 vaccines in human trials globally, with six in or about to start final phase three trials, including programs in the US, China, Brazil, Russia, and the UK. And a special shout out here to the Oxford University vaccine, which also looks extremely promising. And many think they will actually be the first to come to market with a viable product. There are nonetheless outstanding questions in relation to the efficacy of vaccines. I mean, we still don't know how long the neutralizing antibodies induced by them last. And it is entirely possible that we will need to have regular updates, perhaps once a year. 
we also don't know what proportion of patients the vaccine will actually protect. Dr. Fauci has said he'd settle for a 70 to 75% effectiveness rate. Um, having said that, uh, as you mentioned, one of our analysts, uh, his father is working on a coronavirus vaccine, and he was very encouraged by the Moderna results and uh, the results elsewhere around the world. And you know, I'm happy to stick to our guns and say, we'll have an effective vaccine available at the end of this year. Um, and I think that'll be more you know, widespread and publicly available in Q1 next year. But ultimately it's an empirical question. Uh, that's just our subjective estimate. Chris, one final topic I want to cover off is the new NAB unlisted hybrid. Can you give us your thoughts here? Yeah, sure, Yingers. Um, so NAB launched a landmark unlisted or over-the-counter hybrid deal last week. It's the 17th of July when we're recording this. And it was a very important deal because it's the first deal that they've had properly publicly distributed. So there was a number of JLMs uh, or joint lead managers a number of co-managers. The deal was sold to sophisticated high net worth individuals and fund managers. I think 10 to 20 fund managers participated, which is quite an impressive number. And they ended up printing $600 million. The deal was very cheap. They priced it at 4% above the bank bill swap rate. So the total yield was about 4.1% compared to the yield available on the ASX for an identical five-year major bank hybrid, which would be around 3.5%. So you're basically getting 50 basis points in extra income annually from this unlisted version of an ASX-listed major bank hybrid. Not surprisingly, demand was strong. So they built a $720 million book and they, as I mentioned, printed $600 million. We invested because it was very cheap and it's performed very well. So the spread has compressed from 400 over bank bills to about 388. And the price of the bond or hybrid has risen from $100 to about 100 spot five zero, So 50 basis points of capital gains in just a week, which is an impressive result. I think what's most interesting is there's been a lot of trading. And we have seen in this one OTC NAB hybrid security as much trading in a day as you get for about 50% of the ASX listed volume in the hybrids market. So it's been very liquid, very active. I think we can currently see six different market makers providing bids and offers. So this is uh, important because it could portend the development of a big OTC bank-issued hybrid market, um, which would result in capital shifting off the ASX into the unlisted market. We've seen this happen before with the bank's uh, Basel III Tier two subordinated bonds. Originally, that market was dominated by listed sub-debt particularly in the years before the uh, implementation of Basel III in 2013. The major banks had a lot of ASX-listed T2 bonds. Tickers were things like ANZHA, NAVHB, WBCHA, WBCHB. And most of those securities were refinanced or replaced in the OTC market, so in the unlisted domain, which, again, resulted in that capital shifting from the ASX effectively into the hands of Insta investors. So while that might not be good news necessarily for ASX brokers, the truth is the brokers can also broke OTC bonds, and many have. We saw many retail wealth groups that were co-managers on the deal. I think groups like Bell Potter, Crestone, Morgans, and others. Don't quote me on those names. It's just off the top of my head. And for existing holders of ASX hybrids, they'll probably benefit from a scarcity premium as that market shrinks a little and is supplemented with the OTC domain. I stress here that the ASX hybrid market is not going to disappear. 
I just think you're going to see over time um, more and more OTC hybrid issuance from the banks, and that will, at the margin, result in a sort of quid pro quo via a commensurate reduction in the volume of issuance on the ASX. Thanks, Chris. And that's a wrap, guys. I hope you have a lovely weekend and week ahead. This podcast does not provide financial advice. It is not an invitation to invest in any financial product and the information in it should not be relied on for any decisions. All views expressed represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or a recommendation and should not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit the moneysmart.gov.au website to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.